Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome back to Talking with Traders. This is the fifth season of the podcast to take us up to the end of 2022. Thanks to all our loyal listeners for returning and welcome to all our new listeners. As before, IG Markets have come on board as sponsors of this podcast. We're truly grateful to have such an award-winning CFD provider as sponsor alongside us. In this season, I'll welcome back some guests from the previous seasons of the podcast to get their updated market views, and we'll also be bringing in some new guests to the microphone too. As always, the aim with these podcasts is to give you the opportunity to listen to differing market views and to assist you with your own trading and investing education. So with that in mind, let's get straight into another episode of Talking with Traders. Welcome back to another episode of Talking with Traders. And in this episode, I'm delighted to welcome a new guest to the podcast series. He is no stranger to most South Africans listening to this, I don't think. His name is Mohammed Nala. He is the other half of the Magic Markets duo with the Finance Ghost, who's been interviewed on this podcast a couple of times already. We actually spoke to him two weeks ago. But Mohammed, now it's your turn to come on as the other half of the duo. Welcome to Talking With Traders. Yeah, thanks, Garth. Always a pleasure chatting to you. And, uh, you know, excited to, uh, to have finally made the cut to be uh, talking with traders. And uh, yeah, just excited. Let's have some fun. Yeah, let's have a chat. So I, as I always do with new guests, it's nice to just get a little bit of a background into you and how you became involved in the markets and just a brief history of your career progression to this point. Yeah. So, I mean, I've always loved markets. You know, when I was a teenager, I was that kid back in the day, you know, we didn't have the, we didn't even have like the, the, the ability to search on the internet for the stuff. So you'd literally go at the back of the newspaper, the business section, and you'd go down a list and you'd see the shares. And, you know, my first involvement in markets was in the unit trust space. You know, back then I knew very little about stocks specifically, but I was a teenager. Uh, and I, I remember for my 16th birthday, my parents asked me, you know, what I wanted. And I very cheekily gave them a a fairly large number. And I said, I want you to invest this for me in this unit trust. And you know, they thought, yeah, this kid is quite precocious. Uh, <laughs> and needless, needless to say, you know, I, I, they didn't actually do it, but I had a side gig, you know, one of those, those retail jobs I was working on weekends. So I saved up the money. Mm-hmm. I put it into the unit trust and, and, you know, lo and behold, started my investment journey that way. Um, by way of educational background, you know, I, uh, I studied at the University of Johannesburg. It was called Rao back in the day. Uh, I have an undergrad in information systems. You know, back then, everyone wanted to be in IT. Maybe I should have stuck it out there and ended up in Silicon Valley. Maybe I'd be a lot richer than I am today. <laughs> but uh, I didn't quite enjoy that. And so I kind of, you know, transferred over to an economics major. I, I then got my postgrad in economics, international trade and finance, uh, and then went on to work at a couple of the South African banks. Uh, Career-wise, you know, it's moved from private clients into kind of institutional capital markets, uh, all the way into kind of research at a very large institutional asset manager, you know, pension fund down in South Africa. So that's been the progression. And today I find myself, you know, as an entrepreneur uh, living on the other side of the world from South Africa, having moved to Canada around three years ago. Mm. Yeah, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. Both you and I emigrated at more or less the same time in 2019. So we'll compare some notes towards the end of the show. But I was um, kind of smiling as you went through the start of your intro there, talking about newspapers and checking the share codes, because that was exactly how I got into it. And I also used to check the share prices. And in fact, often getting to school early in the morning, 
um the in the library they used to order the the star newspaper and there was always the business report with the share price quotes and i'd go and i was the only guy in the school that wanted to take the business report section out of the star newspaper to read it so it was always available so i'm smiling at your background i guess the fact that you started out in unit trusts probably was a good thing my mine was rather more racy than that got into trading penny shares and warrants and as a result the the journey was a very difficult one in the beginning so <laughs> sounds like you were a little bit more sensible in those early years oh yeah um, you know i mean it was it was such a it was such a fascinating time i think we, we all go through it in, in different stages of, of maturation uh, maybe goth i think you were just smarter than me right you're willing to try out the warrants i was terrified i had no idea what a warrant was and i mean later on you know we, we went down that path of folly as well so traded all kinds of financial instruments but you know what they say you've got to pay your school fees one way or another right yeah well i paid them in spades i often think i could have probably got an mba you know, <laughs> with the money that i lost in my first five years on the stock market but anyway, that's an old story. And I guess like we often say, you do kind of go through a rite of passage in this game. And especially if you're an active trader trading leveraged instruments, there's definitely that rite of passage. Most people go through and blow up an account along the way, uh, learning the, the learning the ropes, as it were. Um, you're quite modest in what you were saying about your background. You said, oh, one of the pension funds in South Africa, it was the biggest pension fund in the whole country, the PRC. Yeah, you know, I was wearing my my patriotic heart on my sleeve. When when I did it, you know, people saw me leaving the private sector to kind of go into what is quasi-public sector. And, you know, the fact of the matter, God, people said, why are you doing this? And I said, you know, if I'm going to make a difference to South Africa, I thought that I'd be able to make the biggest difference and have the biggest impact at the biggest asset manager, at the PIC. Uh, from a timing perspective, you know, they were trying at that stage to reorientate the organization. They had gone and recruited a whole bunch of people from the private sector uh, to try and, you know, change the culture, bring in some new processes, you know, private sector thinking into this massive uh, fund manager. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, obviously a lot of things have transpired at the PIC, you know, some of that political in nature. Uh, so it ended up being a fairly toxic time toward the latter part of my, my tenure. And that kind of dovetailed with my timing in terms of, of immigrating. It certainly wasn't the cause for it. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, it, that we kind of had some some personal reasons. We'll go into that later on. Uh, but, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's still the largest asset manager in South Africa. I still believe very firmly in the role it plays, not just in that economy, but in terms of the impact that it can actually have. And so I think there's some very good people still at the organization. And I, I'm still in touch with them and wish them the best of luck because I think the work they do is just so systemically important to South Africa as a country. Yeah. Okay. Super. Now, you know, your, your, your role's there at the PIC and also in the banking world before that were very much macroeconomic in nature. So I want to get into your head a little bit in terms of where we are in the macroeconomic landscape of the world at the moment. I mean, we sit in a very difficult time. There are a hell of a lot of cross currents that we're faced with in terms of a war in Ukraine and we come out the back end of a pandemic with all kinds of supply chain disruptions and we you know, interest rates are rising, inflation is rising. Uh, we, we've got a lot of things on our plate. I mean, as a financial markets trader, it's quite difficult to navigate all of this. But I wanted to pick your brain and just get your bird's eye view on the global 
economy as we see it right now. And it, I mean, and we can obviously talk for hours about this, but we don't have hours. So I want you to just spend a couple of minutes talking about this. But we're in a bear market for equities and for bonds. I mean, it's been the worst year for a 60-40 bond port, uh, equities versus bond portfolio since the 1930s. So that's going back to the Great Depression. These are tough times. So we're, we're, what do you make of all of it? Yeah, in fact, that point on the 60-40 split, I was just mentioning it to a client last week saying, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, I think it's the worst in almost 100 years. So to your point, the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's the product of the fact that we've gone through this unprecedented time. Let's 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 go all the way back to the global financial crisis because that's for me where this came about. It's certainly not where it started. We had easy monetary policy before that. But as we went into the global financial crisis, we had the price of money effectively being set so low that it created these massive imbalances in global economies. It created massive imbalances in global financial markets. And the surprising thing is a lot of people say, you know, early days when we had the, the, the monetary largesse that came through, you didn't see it come through in terms of inflation. But we have to qualify that point because you didn't see it come through in terms of consumer inflation. You saw it come through in terms of asset price inflation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an important nuance because at the time we had China acting as the counterbalance in terms of consumer inflation. So China was a very large deflationary force in the world. They took low labor costs, uh, economies of scale, and they exported that out to the rest of the world. So the rest of the world enjoyed this period of exceptionally low inflation for an exceptionally long period of time. And I think that bred a very high degree of complacency in policymakers in, let's call it, the West, because they were the beneficiaries of this. They thought, hey, our policies are fine. And so they kept that price of money artificially low. They experimented around the early kind of, you know, 2012s, there and thereabouts. They started hiking again. The ECB in particular was early on that. And then had to reverse track because we had the Eurozone debt crisis. So for me, the period we find ourselves in is really this massive extension from the global financial crisis through that Eurozone debt crisis into the pandemic, which again, you know, we kind of partially reversed. We then just used all the same tools. We threw it at the problem. And now we find ourselves with actual choke points in the real economy. So, you know, policymakers in a nutshell right now are reacting very sharply. They were arguably behind the curve. So we all know that. Now, I must be honest, I was of the view that inflation was relatively transitory because mathematically, you know, you've got prices that escalated. And because inflation is a rate of change, that should come off. And so the thing that upset the apple cart there is really choke points in terms of the war in Ukraine that have kept energy prices a lot higher than they are. It's Mm -hmm. impacted food prices. And so those components, food and fuel, have been large drivers of headline inflation. But God, very importantly, and to round up this point, I think, unfortunately, inflation has stayed higher for an extended period of time. Central banks are behind the curve. So now they've really reacted in the sharpest reaction function we've certainly seen in decades. I mean, it's it's probably the sharpest since the Great Depression times as well, just in terms of the pace of that. Mm. And the problem we have is because inflation has persisted for so long at a higher level, we run the risk of wage price spirals entrenching that inflation. So it blunts the efficacy of monetary policy. That is why we find ourselves in a very difficult economic backdrop. And the question mark now is who blinks first? Because if policymakers blink first, in fact, just today we had the Central Bank of Canada and they hiked by 50 basis points. Now that is slightly lower than the 75 that the market was pricing in, but they did lead the Fed by hiking by 75 earlier on in the cycle. So the question mark, like I say, it's a game of chicken. 
who blinks first? Do we see a reversal or a pausing from central banks? Because if we do, we then should see some relief come through to financial markets. Right. Okay. One one point you didn't touch on so much around the inflation issue is just that, well, you did touch on it a little bit, but it's the China aspect and the fact that you know, yes, China was the world, what it, I suppose it is, but it has been the world's factory. Everybody's outsourced their manufacturing to China because of the cheap labor and the economies of scale, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But now, you know, China is, is largely becoming the enemy of the West. I mean, it's even been labeled as such by certain Western governments. Uh, and, and as a result, you're starting to see some of that production being reshored, moved away from China to places like Vietnam or Mexico or you know even back to the states or parts of Europe maybe and i guess that means that those we're now seeing a reversal of that element of 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 low inflation because now effectively you're creating a system a setup where inflation is actually systemically higher because of these you know higher production costs elsewhere in the world right I think it's a very valid point. And, you know, it, it goes beyond China because you can you can extrapolate similar thinking to, for example, supply chains and logistics is that the world's system was built around efficiency and low cost rather than resilience. Uh, and that's really what we find ourselves facing today is that the system's not resilient. Uh, and as soon as you have these geopolitical fracture points emerging, people realize, oh, holy smoke, you know, this proportion of our energy comes from Russia, or this proportion of our semiconductors come from Taiwan, which sits on China's border. So, you know, I think those geopolitical considerations means that you're not just taking a 50,000 foot view, you're taking a view from orbit. You know, it's these really super long-term trends that you have to be aware of because, you know, I, I think it was Napoleon who said that, you know, China's the sleeping dragon and when it awakes, the world will tremble, right? So, so that just shows you the kind of lens you have to apply. Uh, this for me is the natural progression of a country, of an economy that is maturing. China is a global power. It was a matter of time before it started asserting that power. And under Xi, I think China feels a lot more assertive. Uh, yeah. Is it the enemy of the West? It depends on who you ask. You know, I know we're going to speak a little bit about some stocks we've covered. And, and BlackRock, for example, as a big, the largest institutional asset manager in the world, they've taken a bet on China. They've invested yeah. more in China. So it is a very polarized debate, but it's not something surprising. I have a lot of discussions around geopolitics, and it's so important to contextualize that in your risk framework, because when you're taking a long-term investing view, when you're investing for your kids and your grandkids, you have to apply that long-term lens because you can't ignore a player like China. You can't say, it's the enemy. We're not going in that space. You have to rather say, how is the cycle likely to play out? And that's a very different, let's be honest, that's actually the very difficult trillion dollar question right now. Yeah, right? yeah, it, it certainly is. And it's a question the world's grappling with the investment world. Um, as we sit here and, and record this podcast, I mean, it's just, it's the weekend after the, the Chinese Communist Party uh, con Congress where Xi has been elected for his third term and the markets didn't like that. They've, they sold off very sharply on Monday. Um, look, they're bouncing a little bit right now as we speak. But I, th I think there are a lot of investment managers out there who got hurt in Russia. They basically saw their investments go to zero. And I guess they're now looking at this and saying, well, we don't really want a round two. Being invested in China can be a little bit uh, a little bit dangerous if they were to, for example, fall out of some of the MSCI indices and the likes. 
and 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 I guess if that uh, sort of narrative remains, then these Chinese stocks, you know, they might look cheap, but maybe they stay cheap. Yeah, it's a non-trivial risk because, you know, again, when you apply a lens to China, China right now, feeling as assertive as it is, is, is trying to orientate itself towards social outcomes, you know, common prosperity. These yeah. are some, that's some of the language, the ethos, the ideology behind it. And that is not necessarily conducive to capitalist values. Yeah. So it's that, that age old conflict and friction that you're seeing come through. Uh, again, where and how you play with China uh, in terms of your investment portfolio is entirely a product of your risk tolerance. I know investors who got portions of their portfolios wiped out, as you indicate, because of Russia. Does that risk exist with China? Absolutely. You know, they might fall out of indices. They might fall out of mandates. If they cancel ADR, for example, you're investing in China through the US. You know, if those structures fall away, those could become very dislocating to uh, investment mandates and whether you're able to invest in, in, in Chinese stocks or ADRs or whatever it may be. Uh, for me personally, I still think that China is, again, systemically important to the world. It's the world's largest economy on a PPP basis. And so you have to try and find a way to participate in that, but also being fully cognizant of the fact that maybe it's position sizing, for example, that yeah. you use to mitigate some of the risk. I just think not being involved is potentially equally risky as being involved and having your investment wiped out, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I guess, as you say, it's about diversification and about position sizing. Don't bet the farm on it, but you know, have a, have an amount invested there that yeah, if it goes to naught, it's not going to kill you. But if it if it doubles in value, you know, it'll also be it'll be helpful. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Let's move away from that. Um, what I wanted to do, and I'm excited about this, was to uh, to, to talk about some of the stocks that you've done and that you've covered on your Magic Markets Premium podcasts with the Finance Ghost. Um, when I spoke to him two weeks ago, we spoke about three stocks, and I've chosen three that I want to speak with with you about as well. Um, I, I've got to say again to, to the listeners of this podcast that if you're not a subscriber to Magic Markets Premium, you really should be. And I'm not paid or incentivized at all to say this. I promise you I'm totally you know, neutral in this, but I'm just a very happy customer. I pay my 99 Rand a month to get Magic Markets Premium in my email box once a week. And the work that you and the finance ghosts do, are it, it's it's incredible. I mean, the depth that you go into to research the companies and the insights that you come up with are, are phenomenal. Um, every podcast is 30 minutes long, so it's nice and short and punchy. And effectively, as I say, 99 Rand a month, that means you're paying 25 Rand per podcast. And the amount of information that you're getting for that is worth you know, multiples of that. So just a quick little plug there for you guys again, because I think what you're doing is is is, is amazing. The stocks that I want to cover with you are um, BlackRock, which is one you actually, it's, it's your latest podcast, in fact, of this week or last week, um, Levi Strauss and Shopify. Um, and when I select the stocks, I'll, I'll be honest, I do select them a little bit selfishly because I've listened to all the podcasts. I mean, I, I, I make sure to listen to each and every one. Certain of them are, well, from an investment standpoint, I'm, I'm kind of looking at them and saying, okay, I, I'm happy with what you've given me in terms of understanding the business, but maybe the timing wasn't right. So now we start looking at things like, for example, a Levi Strauss, and maybe let's start with that one. Um, uh, you recorded a podcast on Levi Strauss in July. 
So what's that about three months ago now? Uh, and at the time you thought the stock was looking like good value. It's now 20% lower than that price even. So selfishly, I'm, I'm wanting to revisit it with you <laughs> and, you know, not to take away from the work that you guys have done on your podcast. We're not going to go into that kind of depth, A, because we don't have the time and B, because listeners must rather go to your podcast channel and listen to the deeper insights on each of these stocks. But what I want to give, what I want to get out of you really is the elevator pitch as you refer to it on these stocks and, and, and where we stand with each of them now. So, I mean, as I said, let's, let's start out with Levi Strauss. Everybody listening to this will know, you know, what they do. They make jeans, but I, I don't want to give too much away. You, you, you give us the elevator pitch on Levi Strauss. Yeah. Th thanks, Garth. I mean, even before I go into that, I just want to thank you so much for, for the plug. You know, this is what we want to hear from our subscribers, being happy customers, engaging with the content. So you know, that's really high praise. And again, from myself and from Ghost, we really, really appreciate that. And I'm hoping your listeners through this discussion can see some of the value add uh, that Magic Markets Premium brings to their life. So yeah, let's let's jump right in. I mean, Levi Strauss, as you correctly say, you know, it's it's such an interesting business. And when we looked at it, you know, a, lo a lot of people don't realize this, but Levi's literally invented the jeans, right? It's, it's, it's also no longer just jeans. I mean, we've, we've done so much stuff in Magic Markets Premium. So before Levi's, we had covered a company called Lululemon. And, and a lot of people might not be familiar with it, but that's, you know, athleisure wear. And guess what? Levi's operates in that athleisure space as well. So, you know, you've got to contextualize it as a full business. And what is interesting for us as well is that this was actually still very much a, a family-owned business. You know, when we looked through the shareholder register, we saw that the family was still a very significant shareholder in the business. Now, what is interesting for us in Levi's, some of the common themes that we had picked up, again, we've covered stocks like Nike, for example, and Magic Markets Premium as well, is that you've had this move of a direct-to-consumer kind of trend that has come through along, you know, a lot of the, the apparel producers out there. And that's something that, Levi's has actually also taken on. And then when we looked at the numbers, you know, it looked fairly attractive. If you looked at gross margins and even operating margins, those were healthy. So, you know, we kind of stumbled across Levi's because we had just prior to that gone through so many stocks where the valuations looked bananas. And again, a point to your listeners, Garth, it's so important that when we cover a stock in Magic Markets Premium, it's not to say that, you know, we like the stock, we want to buy the stock. We're covering stuff that we find interesting. Yeah. And sometimes we we once we do our research, we take you through that process with us, we come to a conclusion that a stock is either fairly valued or expensive. And you know, that's our view. Yeah. And interestingly enough, at the time, you know, we liked Levi's. We thought that it did represent some good fundamental underlying value. Uh, and that's why we kind of put it on our on our watch list. Another key point, Garth, is that again for the listeners. Uh, they may or may not be familiar with this, but we look at the fundamentals and then we also look at the technicals. Yeah. And I think this is where, for me, the thesis on, on Levi's was at, at the time we looked at it, we didn't consider it as an ideal trading stock. You know, we certainly said it was for, for higher risk traders, you know, liquidity, for example, in the stocks, not as high as you'd, you'd expect in, in some of the other stocks that we had covered in Magic Markets Premium. And so on that basis, it was in a bear channel. And we actually, at the time, thought that, you know, we, we provide support and resistance levels on either mm -hmm. side of, of, of where we're sitting at the time of writing our report. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, from the time we covered Levi's to today, 
we've actually gone, we've traded to our, our, our first resistance and our second resistance level because we had at the time highlighted that there was a lot of short interest in the stock. Mm-hmm. And so you might see some profit taking on that short interest. Yeah. So we saw that unwind a little bit. Once that happened, the stock traded back down and then we got to our support one, our S1 level. So I've had a look at it recently and I must say, I'm actually more interested in Levi's now than I was at the time we covered the report because I think Mm. some of the funnies have worked themselves out. We've had an additional set of results that have come through. Uh, And importantly, I want to kind of highlight a couple of key points. Like you say, you kind of ask this. I don't even think it's selfish, guys. As a subscriber, we ask our subscribers to engage with the content because when we cover a stock is not necessarily when we think there's time to either add it or remove it from a portfolio. We're saying these are the things we're watching and then you've got to watch that over a period of time for when it's right to either add or take out of your portfolio. And so on that basis, Levi's, as I indicated, they've gone through an additional set of results. Those were decent results. You know, we had, yes, gross margins came under a little bit of pressure. They've come off a little bit. I think that was the, the headline that you will have seen, again, if you're just reading the news stories. But if you look below that, they've actually trimmed their kind of sales and marketing spend. And so on a net and an, on, on an operating margin basis, that's actually gone up. So- Still an interesting business. I like it. And and technically, it's probably worth a look at again if you're looking to get long. Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, I have actually bought it in the last week um, after preparing for this podcast and going back and listening to some of those previous podcasts that you guys had done. Uh, and it's exactly what you say. And you don't necessarily put a podcast out every week saying this is the stock to buy right now. I mean, you've been very honest on some of the, of the others where you've covered the stocks and you've come out with a, a resounding no. I mean, the one that stands out the most for me, well, there are two, but uh, Netflix was one where you guys came and you said, this thing is wildly overvalued. I mean, I think it fell about 60% after that, if not more. Um, Etsy was another one which you identified as being wildly overvalued. So it's not just about stocks to buy. It's also sometimes about stocks not to buy, but it's also about the education. And that's what I also love about the podcasts that you do is that the way you analyze the businesses, the way you dissect the numbers and look at it holistically is such an interesting education because I'm not, I'm not a fundamental fundy like you guys are. I mean, I'm a more just a, a plain old technical analysis based trader drawing lines on charts. So so to 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 be able to combine your fundamental insights with my technicals and try and get the timing right is a very powerful combination. Uh and and as I say, yeah, you know, you 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 bring our attention to certain stocks, maybe not to buy at the time, but it's certainly to just be educated and keep them on your radar. Yeah, I, I I appreciate that. You know, I mean again I, I always feel almost a little overwhelmed because we, we include a very basic technical overview in our reports on any stock that we cover. And when when someone like yourself with years and years, decades of experience in technical analysis looks at that, you know, I'm I'm always interested to see if you're finding value in mm. the technical component. But we've 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 kept it at a certain level also, Garth, quite importantly, because we don't want to overwhelm people with a lot of the technicalities. We try yeah. and create the right balance between the fundamental investment long-term thesis versus the kind of more trading flavor. What do the technicals look like? Uh, And it's interesting you mentioned Netflix. Uh, In fact, at the time of this recording, our very next show is going to be on Netflix again. And we actually say it on the podcast. We say that, you know, it's it's the one show that's gotten the most attention uh, on Magic Markets Premium because we covered it in January. It fell off a cliff. Uh, we then had a, we do recaps periodically. So we did it in a recap show with Disney as a streaming themed show. 
And then Netflix have just come out with results. And the reason we're covering it again is because there's been enough movement in the underlying, in terms of just the way the business is run, in the underlying thesis to warrant us looking at it again. It's also, incidentally, I must add, one of the stocks that Ghost and I disagree on quite a bit. And that's yeah. something interesting because people don't see that in the final product. We kind of present this cohesive view. It's very balanced. We've got a bull and a bear case. Yeah. But before all of that, we do a lot of robust debate amongst ourselves saying, you know, this doesn't make sense to me. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. And so on Netflix, we've tried to showcase that in the re most recent show. So go and have a look at that as soon as it's published. It will be published later this week. So by the time this podcast goes, goes live, you will see that show come through. But again, it's highlighting the debates that we have, but it's also highlighting how a story can evolve. And you might not like a stock at a certain point in time, and you may like a stock at a later point in time. I mean, yeah. I've held Netflix through a lot of the pain, not all of the pain, but a lot of the pain. And you know, I'm not going to give away too much here, but in the latest show, we just, there are no, there are no sacred cows here. Yeah. Everything is ready to punch. You know, we go and we punch and we challenge ourselves to say, you know, we can actually change a view if enough has changed in the market, if enough has changed in the company. You're listening to Talking With Traders, a podcast series brought to you by IG a world-leading online trading and investment provider. If you haven't checked out the IG online trading platform, please do so and visit IG.com. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast series on your favorite podcast app or website by clicking on the subscribe button and you'll be notified weekly as we release new episodes. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, if the facts change, change your mind, change your view, right? It's uh, you have to in this in this business. You can't be married to a view forever. All right, let's move on. Um, Shopify is the next one. I must say, I was very interested when I listened to this podcast of, with, with you guys. It was covered on the 11th of May, so some time back now. You called it like the the Canadian Naspers, which I thought was an interesting name to give the stock. Um, Shopify, you know, most would think of it as it's very future orientated. It is like the I don't know the online shopping mall, if you will, uh, of 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 these times, allowing small businesses to list their businesses there, operate their businesses there, display their products, run the logistics, uh, the the financials, etc. But this was one of the stocks that you came away and said you wouldn't touch it. It was way too overvalued. I mean, the share price has 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 moved lower since you covered it. I guess not much has changed in terms of that view then. Yeah, so so Shopify is an interesting one in that, again, we, we kind of covered it. There were a number of factors. I'm going to unpack some of the stuff that we really didn't like about it that I, I still don't like about it. But, you know, at the time, there are a couple of very strong mega trends. So at a macro level, if I come at this from a macro perspective, I think of things like e-commerce, for example, or the creator economy, and all of those things are such big tailwinds. So naturally, you assume any business operating in this space should do well. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a very important point to look at and say, no, that's not the case. Because, you know, we're at pains, we're at pains at Magic Markets to show that you can have a great trend, you can have great, you know, tailwinds come through, you can have a great idea, and even sometimes a great business, which maybe Shopify is not, but you can sometimes have a great business, but then are you paying the right price for that business? Yeah. So you have to apply all of these levels of thinking to it. So on Shopify specifically, at the time of covering it, there were some very good mega trends that are supporting that business. But at the same time, when we looked at things like valuation, when we looked at the underlying numbers in the business and whether they made money or not, you know, when we looked at 
corporate governance issues. And this was such an important bugbear for me because at the time of us covering Shopify, there was talk around, you know, the company taking a proposal to shareholders to, can they give Toby, who's the founder of Shopify, an additional super share to try and, you know, solidify his control over the company. And when we looked at all of these things together, you know, it just, a lot of things didn't resonate for us. A lot of it didn't make sense. As you correctly say, you know, the, sh- the the stocks come off substantially. Now, for investors, when we covered this, you know, it was before there was a 10 to 1 stock split on, on Shopify. So if you're reading the old report, bear in mind that, you know, it was trading around, I, I think it was around $300 a share. For context, you know, the stocks moved from like $1,800 down to $300. Then there was a 10 to 1 split. So it's been all over the show. I stand corrected. I think we got down to the lower 20s. Mm-hmm. And again, if, if we dovetail that to levels that we had indicated on our technical analysis at the time, you know, I think we got to support one and probably between support one, support two, just on a technical basis. Mm-hmm. It's, it's subsequently bounced off those lows. But when I look at the business, I still find it expensive. I still don't like the corporate governance issues. I think they're losing more money now than when we covered them the first time around. Mm. You know, margins have gone more negative. And so if I'm looking, even if I'm looking at the e-commerce space, there are more compelling arguments. I mean, this stock trades at a premium to the likes of an Amazon, for example, you know, mm. and, and that's not saying Amazon's cheap. It's just saying these guys are more expensive than Amazon. They trade at a premium to, you know, the Latam Amazon, which is Mercado Libre. So that's the other thing, Garth, that's very important for our subscribers is that we try and give subscribers Again, an eagle's view of what does the competitive landscape look like? For me personally, that's where I find a lot of the value in Magic Markets Premium is it's not sometimes, it's not in the stock that we're covering. It's in finding out who else plays in the space. What do their valuations look like? And sometimes that's where you're finding the, the investing gems. So I think that's just an important, you know, it's, it's an important dimension to add on top of this if we're trying to build the use case for, for our product, which again, I'm going to selfishly plug out there. But again, I think there's some value to our subscribers in paying some attention to that competitive landscape sometimes yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. And the third stock that I wanted to chat to you about is BlackRock. So that's the one, that's the most recent podcast that you've got on Magic Markets Premium right now. Uh, It's very interesting time to be covering this stock because I guess it's the world's largest asset manager and it's therefore it is also subject to the movements in the market. And I've, I've always thought, and I think rightly so, you know, owning asset managers in a bull market is 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 really a great way to play the market because a lot of them spit out cash they pay quite chunky dividends but also they're almost they're a leveraged play on the movements of the market aren't they because they take fees uh, based on assets under management and as the assets under management grow because the market grows so the fees grow and you get almost that flywheel effect in in a sense where the earnings grow at, at a rapid rate and your performance on the share price can outstrip the, the market, the indices, and you get paid a nice handsome dividend along the way as well. So a stock like this interests me. It it has come down a lot, as one would expect, given that what's happened to, to financial markets this year. And I think it peaked at over $900 a share. And at the moment, it's somewhere down on near 600 odd. It dropped almost to $500 last week, and it's bounced up off that level. So I missed it at the lows, but yeah, it's still one that I would keep on my radar, I guess, as a potential buy. Um, I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't be taking too much of the words out of your mouth. Give us, you know, from your perspective, BlackRock, the elevator pitch, and, 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 and 
you know, what do we do with it from here? Yeah, Garth, I mean, you, you summed it up so beautifully, right? So <laughs> I think we, we refer to it as this high beta play and, and you refer to it as a leveraged play on the markets. Yeah. I think the key takeaway for, for me that I want to kind of impress on, on the listeners today is that BlackRock's not a play on just equity markets. No. BlackRock is a play on assets or financial markets as a whole. Because remember, BlackRock plays in equities. They play in fixed income. They play in alternative assets as well. Mm-hmm. And so you know, the, the mega trend that certainly from a macro perspective I, I liked here is that we've, we've had this trend of the financialization of the world. I mean, that's something that we're not getting away from. I think yeah. you know, economies are financializing. You know, everything's financializing. BlackRock sits at the apex of that. As the world's largest asset manager, they stand to benefit from that mega trend. And guess what? If the flavor of the month are equities, BlackRock has a product there. If the flavor of the month are fixed income or bond funds, they have a product there. If the flavor of the month migrates from that into anything else, BlackRock has the scale and the ability to create an investable product for their clients in that space and then to execute on that profitably. And I think that's the reason why there's such a nice, almost asset class agnostic play on financial markets as a whole. So if I wanted a high beta markets play that's not asset class specific, that's where I would look to the likes of a BlackRock. And I think that was the key takeaway for me from a a macro perspective in terms of of the elevator pitch. Now, when we covered BlackRock, it was in the upper 500s. You correctly say, you know, it it kind of bottomed in the the lower 500s. Picking tops and bottoms is is really a a fool's errand. You know this, I know this, you know, it's, it's really around, you know, yes, you can, time your entry into the market specifically. But again, you're never going to get it right at the bottom, right at the top. If you do, you're lucky. You know, that's yeah. that's that's really the, the fact yeah. of the matter. Yeah. On BlackRock, as I say, when we covered it, it was around 577 a share. Uh, it wasn't from a valuation perspective, our assessment, I'll give something away here, right? I don't think we found it particularly expensive or cheap. It was kind of close to fair value around that time. And at the time of this recording, I actually just had a look at it it's actually gapped up quite substantially. So we're around $630 a share now, but that has correlated with a bit of a bounce that you've seen come through in in terms of asset prices. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right on that. What do I like in BlackRock? I think very similar to you, Garth, you know, you're getting a decent dividend that comes through. Periodically, the company will deploy capital to buy back shares. So you're getting a share repurchase program. That's a bit of an underpin. They've been very responsible on that. So you see a lot of companies doing this, right? But a lot of them go and buy at the top and then they're doing nothing at the bottom. BlackRock, again, this is their business, right? They are tied to financial markets. So I'd expect them to have good timing on some of their share repurchases. And I think they've delivered on that. The good dividend is a nice underpin. And so when I look at this, you know, I mentioned this on our pod as well. I look at this in the same vein that I would look at, for example, some of your very large established US banks. I hold those in the portfolio because I like the dividend underpin. And periodically, when you see these stocks approach what you think's fair value, I think they make good, solid, core, long-term holdings in the portfolio. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm never going to go out there and, and trade BlackRock aggressively. That's not what I'm going to be doing. But as a core holding in the portfolio, it's certainly one that I, I like personally. And again, periodically on nice pullbacks, I think is a position to add into in the portfolio. Very similar to, like I say, I've, I've liked banks through the cycle. I look at these as through the cycle plays. Uh, and again, you, if you pick those up at the right times, 
when it's particularly kind of, you know, doesn't overshoot on the upside. If it does, obviously you trim the position, but when it overshoots to the downside, a nice addition to the portfolio for the long term. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you made it so clear in the podcast that you said, you know, these are the, this is the kind of business you want to buy when markets are beaten up. And well, that's, we are certainly in beaten up markets now. Whether they get more beaten up still it remains to be seen. I mean, they might. I don't think we're out of the woods entirely. But um, I guess, you know, if your view is for the longer term, then accumulating it into this current market weakness is is probably not a bad time to be doing it. Mo, we, we'll kind of get towards the latter part of this podcast now. now. We mentioned in the beginning that we would compare notes a little bit about uh, your experience of immigrating to Canada and mine uh, immigrating to the UK. Uh, it's not really what talking with traders is about, but there's always a nice to bring a little bit of a different element in and a little bit of a personal aspect uh, to the guests on the on the podcast. Um you and I both left South Africa. I think it was in 2019 you left as well, right? And I yep. left the same, more or less the same time. So we both kind of three and a half years into our respective journeys to different parts of the world. We have tread a path that a lot of people are also treading now. I mean, I, I'm constantly amazed at the number of friends and contacts and colleagues that I know of who are are leaving South Africa, unfortunately, for for the country. Uh, I mean, none of us, I suppose, desperately wanted to leave. We, we often left because we felt we needed to for the future of our kids or whatever the reasons might have been. Emigrating is not an easy thing to do, especially when you're our sort of age. I think you, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 43 now. We did it. We moved when I was 40. It's a tough time of life to be up sticks and move and relocate your whole family. So give us a little bit of insight into your experiences of immigrating to Canada and how you're finding it there. Yeah, Garth, I mean, it's such a contentious point because it's it's, it's an emotive issue. Um, And sometimes I like to strip the emotion out of it. So, yes, we moved around the same time. I moved around the middle of 2019. Uh, you know, back then, geez, hindsight's perfect. If I had known there was a global pandemic coming, uh, in all reality, who knows? I, I may not have made the move. Uh, mm-hmm. I may still be sitting down in South Africa. I want to almost start off on 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 a very specific point. In that, as you say, immigration's difficult. Leaving the country of your birth is difficult, and we did it because, from a a perspective of safety and security, crime for me is the one hotbed issue in South Africa that is an existential risk. Mm. It's something you can't adequately hedge against. And so I've been unapologetic about it. That for me was the deal breaker. You know, we unfortunately had some incidents, impacted family, and we then decided, okay, this we've got to make that move from a safety and security perspective. So that was the rationale behind it. And the reason I qualify that upfront is because I'm a firm believer that South Africa, like many emerging markets, always has this this additional flavor or spice, if you want to call it that. Mm. But you can hedge away so many problems. You know, again, depending on where you sit in in society, I'm not naive or arrogant enough to believe that every South African can do that. But we've always been privileged. We've existed at a subset of society that's educated, that has access to resources. And that subset of society in South Africa today 
can hedge its risks. You can hedge against the energy outages. You can hedge, you know, get a generator, get solar. It's expensive. You can do it. You can hedge against, you know, private sector, private sector, private schooling in South Africa is still excellent. Mm. Private healthcare in South Africa is still excellent. You know, I know, yes, maybe it's moving at the margins, it's deteriorating, but it's still excellent. Um, And so when you throw all of that into the mix, that was the reason why we did it is we moved for the stuff we couldn't hedge against. Mm. Um, Timing wise, it's it's been interesting. You know, I think it's difficult, uh, but you you superimpose on that a pandemic and the ability. I mean, Canada's a lot further than the UK. You know, I used mm. to always we used to travel to the UK so much back when I was down in South Africa. You know, it's an overnight flight. Canada is a full two day affair. You've yeah. got to go via Europe or via somewhere, and you land in South Africa a full twenty four hours, if not more, later, and that makes it logistically very challenging when you need to get back for family emergencies. I still have family down in South Africa, my mom. I still have economic interests down in South Africa. The the distance makes that difficult. And I think that's the one thing I'd add on top of maybe the UK is that the cultural and the, you know the cultural familiarity between the UK and South Africa is very high. The cultural familiarity between Canada and South Africa is a little different. And so those are the nuances that people don't pick up. It doesn't matter how many times you visit a place as a tourist. I've been up here many times in the past. Living in a place is distinctly different from visiting it, even if you're there for extended periods of time. I don't know if you share that view, Garth. Yeah, absolutely. I do share that view. Um, you know, living in a place is very different to going there on a holiday, obviously. Um you know, holiday is always fun. You're doing the the fun stuff. You're eating at nice restaurants. You're you know you're there not not to live the day to day life. So yes, I mean it's the same for us here in the UK. And I agree with you when you said that the part about the pandemic. I mean that was seriously tough for us. We we arrived in the UK and six months later the pandemic hit, and then it was all of a sudden homeschooling and you know trying to work and you're trying to still get settled in a new environment and figure out this new place. I mean, it was a bloody tough time of life. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to lie about that. We've come out the other side of it. It's good. Um, we're enjoying the life in the UK as well. We, we left for similar reasons. Look, we were fortunate enough that we didn't have any incidents uh, in terms of crime happen to us, but we knew a lot of people who were victims of crime and you always knew that it was a very high risk and it's quite binary isn't it it's it's one of those things you know if you if you can not have to put up with the crime and will not be a victim of crime life in south africa is quite nice but if you are a victim it can be terrible so it's a pretty binary thing um so that was obviously one of the reasons for us leaving as well but it was also just a future for our children uh and and I, I don't know, but maybe also because we're markets people, we're, we follow economics and whatever. Maybe we're closer to the numbers and the realities of, of what's happening at an economic level in the country. And I just looked at South Africa and I always thought to myself, it's just, it, ca- it cannot work. The mathematics doesn't work. Demographics is not in your favor. The unemployment rate is too high. The education levels are, are diabolical. It just doesn't really make for a very good cocktail. And I suppose that's the, the, you know having the ability to leave was 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 there for us, and we took it and did it. And yeah, I mean, three and a half years later, we are happy. We're enjoying life in the UK. But I won't lie, I do miss South Africa. I miss high felt thunderstorms. I miss my family. I miss friends. I miss that familiarity of. And I'm, you know what? Something I really miss as well, Mo, is that that South African chias. 
the you know south africans are special people they have the ability to make a joke or see the funny side of everything no matter how tough it is you know load shedding and water shedding and problems they can still find the funny side in all of it and that's really really something i miss about the south africans because you know being in in, in england I don't know. They just don't have the. Well, I suppose they don't have the same problems, and maybe maybe for South Africans, it's a coping mechanism to just you know find the funny side in all the problems. Yeah, you, you, I find that's such an astute point, right? Because like in Canada, Canada, Canadians are very polite, and you know we enjoy it up here. There's a great outdoors culture here. My, my daughters love hiking. You know, the safety element is big. You know, I can go to the park with my kids, and that that's important, right? Mm-hmm. We miss South Africa too. You know, we were down in South Africa for a reasonably extended uh, trip during Northern Hemisphere summer this year. Unfortunately, we had a, a loss in the family. My father-in-law during COVID, we weren't able to get back. That's what made it so difficult. Mm. And so we, we had to come back for closure. We had to come back to see family. But when we came back, you know, it was, it was so interesting because there was a contrast. You know, my youngest daughter was too young to remember South Africa entirely. And, you know, she distinctly her frame of reference is Canada. And so she very quickly said, well, okay, I'm I'm done with this now. I want to go home. My older daughter, who has a living memory of South Africa, was very torn because she liked a lot of things in South Africa, her cousins, a lot of the stuff we were able to do. But she also partially likes Canada. So she was kind of in the middle. And again, for people like us who've lived most of our lives and had our careers down in South Africa, that, that difficulty comes back on every visit. Mm. But to your to your cultural point, South Africans are resilient people. Yeah. South Africans are resilient wherever they are in the world, including in South Africa. And that you call it the chiss, right? Mm. South Africans can laugh with one another, but we can have difficult conversations. Mm. We can have conversations around viewpoints that are diametrically opposed. And at the end of all of that, hey, we'll have a drink together. We'll have a bride together. And you know, there's some camaraderie that comes through. Yeah. And I miss that because there's a, a degree of genuineness that comes through from South yeah. Africans. Maybe it resonates with us because we are South African. Yeah. But I think that is such a tremendous asset. And, you know, my last point on this, Garth, is that, you know, I, I don't want to be that expat or someone living outside of South Africa who bashes South Africa all the time. I still love South Africa. It's very close to my heart. And like you, look at the numbers the worry for me is the trajectory was still heading towards the negative and it takes a long time to turn countries around. So I was saying, can I spend the rest of my adult life and a large portion of my kids' adult life waiting to turn this around? Or should I give my kids a global platform and we could always go back to South Africa if things turn around? So there's those perspectives. But at the end of the day, you know, South Africa is still for me a place of tremendous, tremendous potential. When you compare it to developed and emerging markets out there, it's just about getting our stuff together. And when and if, I say when and if, because the jury is still out on this, mm. when and if South Africa can get that right and stop shooting ourselves in the foot and hating one another, and you know all of the toxic structural elements and societal elements that come out of that, South Africa could unleash a very powerful underlying nascent potential that is there. And you know, again, it's do you wait for that? Do you try and you know help that along? And how do you do that? That's still something that's very close to my heart, but difficult under the current circumstance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I mean, I, I guess I share all of those sentiments, and I agree. Yeah, South Africa, it, it, but it's always been a country with so much potential, but yet just doesn't ever seem to fulfill the potential that's there. And that 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 is quite a a sad 
sort of thing. And I guess the more people that immigrate, you know, there's just fewer pillars holding it all together. And that's that's quite sad. Anyway. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, la- last point, I mean, Garth, your point, the South African diaspora is growing, you know, just post-pandemic. I think during pandemic, there was a freeze. And post-pandemic, literally, I've, I've, I've come across in my own social circle, very close to where, where I am right now, we've had dozens of new entrants, new South Africans coming across to Canada. Now, Canada's not your, let's call it, it's not your high volume jurisdiction for South Africans leaving. They go to Australia, they go to the UK. But even in Canada, we're seeing a wave of immigration. And I Mm -hmm. see that as quite cyclical. So yes, the brain drain is real. South Africa loses a lot of that talent. Uh, When and if that talent is able to give something back and help South Africa along, well and good. But the fact of the matter is that it's challenging and if people move on, there's there's almost like a split. A lot of people move on and never look back. And there are a lot of people that kind of look back, but there's there's this angst to that looking back process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think I'm in the latter camp there, which makes it very difficult. But mm-hmm. again, you know, I, I think as South Africans, we're resilient. You're in the UK. You seem to be doing great with Traders yeah. Corner. You know, we've started up magic markets as a business during pandemic. I am still very involved in consulting down to institutional asset managers and clients down in South Africa and corporates just given the old networks. And so it's still, as I say, very close to me operationally, practically, and then dear to my heart as well. And that's mm. never going to go away. Yeah, same here. I mean, absolutely. I've still got a business down there, still operates a lot, deal with a lot of South African clients, colleagues, uh, and it's in my heart, without a doubt. We've actually named our house because in the UK, you know, it's very popular to name your house. We've named our house "Scatterlings of Africa," after obviously the Johnny Clegg song. And uh, and I was very fond of Johnny Clegg's music, and I just also felt it was fitting, given that that's exactly what we are. We are scatterlings of Africa. Yeah, I've got I've got a a lawn ornament that is a granite rhino. That sits outside my, my the front of my house. So you never really escape Africa. We are scatterlings of Africa, and uh, you know maybe maybe we get the opportunity to proudly fly the flag at some point in time. But yeah. uh, that diaspora is real and uh, seems to be increasing at this point in time. Uh, I don't get to name my house, but my rhino is going to have to going to have to do, do the trick. <laughs> Super. Well, I'll be flying that South African flag in uh, what's it, two weeks from now when the when the, the Springboks are over here playing rugby at Twickenham. I'll be flying that South African flag for sure and wearing my green and gold jersey. Oh, absolutely. All right, Mo. It's been wonderful speaking to you. Thanks for your time. Always, it's it's been as fantastic as I was expecting it to be. The conversation's flown beautifully. Let's do this again sometime. But uh, for now, let's bring it to a close. And I thank you very much for your time. And also just keep up the good work you guys are doing on Magic Markets because it really is superb. Thanks, Garth. We we really appreciate it. And again, you know, I know you have a Twitter following, but if anyone wants to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Muhammad Nala. You can find me, you know, rambling sometimes on, on macro stuff and sometimes with Magic Markets. And to, to those of you listening to this who haven't gone into Magic Markets, again, my, my shameless pump here, Go and check us out at 99 Rand a month. We, we want to bring institutional level insights to every single investor. That's something that's very dear to us. And so we, we're certainly, Garth, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you were happy to have us on here, unsolicited, I might add. And, uh, you know, to, to people who are coming in, if you enjoy this, we'd love to see you inside Magic Markets Premium. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Ma. Cheers, Garth. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Talking With Traders, brought to you by IG, a world-leading CFD provider. 
We really are privileged to have such a leader in the field of online trading involved in this series. Please follow us on Facebook and engage with us there. And a reminder to make sure you subscribe to this series by clicking on the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also appreciate if you'd leave a review on the app too. Till next time.